Welcome to Drugs Did This, a conversation about the impact of alcohol and other drugs on people who live in the center of the Tar Heel State. We will share stories from people in recovery, from people who have lost loved ones to addiction, and from people whose loved ones are still ensnared by their addictions. We will hear from people in the community. It may be a counselor, a paramedic, or a police officer, people whose jobs bring them in daily contact with those struggling with addiction. My name is Chip Womack. I will be your host. After more than three decades as a journalist, I now work at Keaton's Place, a recovery resource center in Asheboro, North Carolina, which brings you this weekly podcast. Our guest today is David Mabe. Uh, how about tell us a little bit about what you do for a living? Uh, well, my name is Mabe. I'm a um, crisis worker at Daymark Recovery Services. Been there for just under a year now. I volunteer with the harm reduction for about two years, going on three years. Um, I'm a peer support specialist. I just try to stay active in the uh, field of recovery. Um, my job at uh, Daymark as a crisis worker is getting people settled, set in um, when they're just coming in, um, still in active addiction, drugs in the system, and try to get them as comfortable as possible while they're making the transition to where they're going next. If uh, if it's not with us, then I do transports to other places. Sometimes my job uh, requires me to uh, be a nurse, uh, the chauffeur. I've had to work with people like in active overdose, um, and those are uh, challenging days. But it uh, just try to be there where I'm needed, uh, someone to they can talk to, someone they can relate to, because it's a it's really tough even wanting to learn about recovery. So as someone who's in recovery themselves, I help bridge that transition. Let's go back a little bit and talk about how you got to where you are today. I am from Asheboro. I went to uh, Southwest Randolph High School. Uh, that's why I work in Asheboro. I had options to go work in other places, but Asheboro doesn't have many options when it comes to recovery. Daymark wasn't a thing when I was in active addiction, so I want to work and give people the option that I didn't have. So as you were growing up, um, what exposure did you have to alcohol or, or, or other drugs uh, as a kid? Um, for the most part, um, I had like distant family that were in active addiction, but never anything that I saw firsthand. Um, parents didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs. I, uh, it was foreign to you. It was uh, until I was like 15. And, like, I was not one of the cool kids. And when the cool kids were doing drugs, like, I would do it here and there. But it was never really my thing. Uh, I didn't get addicted right away. So it was just dabble. Uh, it wasn't until after I graduated high school, um, before I joined the military, that I was really introduced and addiction took its, took its hold on me. You say that cool kids were doing drugs. Uh, when I was in high school, the cool kids were drinking alcohol. Uh, 
there may have been dabbling in some other drugs too, but primarily it was alcohol. And uh, I fell into the same pattern that it sounds like you did with uh, using alcohol because it was sort of accepted among a certain crowd. What sort of drugs were were your classmates using? Um, in high school, it was um, th- drinking and marijuana, but I would see people do pills here and there, um, different kinds. And like I said, it wasn't really my thing, but it was just the kind of people I was trying to be around, trying to impress. What What was your first experience? Was it alcohol or something else? Um, I think the first thing I ever did was... Uh, smoke weed it wasn't uh i said it wasn't really a not a gateway drug but it was the crowd that i was hanging out with tell us about how that evolved what after high school what where did you go um before joining the military i had graduated uh high school early um i had the grades had everything um so I went ahead and graduated and got me a second job. Like I knew I was leaving for the Marine Corps, but figured I would work until then. And I picked up a uh, a night shift job working at Walmart. And one of the guys that I had met there, he's like, "Oh, I uh, I heard you smoked weed. Um, you want to come out to my truck? I want to show you something." And thought he was like the cool one there. Uh, I had a big problem with being accepted back then. But um, so I went out with this dude to his truck and he pulled out a Frisbee and put a white line down and uh, it was methadrone and everybody called it drone around here. It was like bath salts before bath salts were a thing. And it was, I'm not going to lie, it was a euphoric experience um, and because I had always done stuff and was able to put it down, I thought that was going to be one of those cases that I was just going to have fun here and there. But it, it wasn't even really the drug that got me hooked. It was the lifestyle because I was never the guy to go to parties, um, did not have a huge friends list. And when I started doing this stuff, uh, I was getting invited everywhere. Um, and for lack of a better phrase, when it came to doing drugs, I was good at it. Like I could take in way more than most people could. So it was, it was a challenge to me, uh, to see how much I could do, what crazy thing I would do afterwards. But where I was working two jobs slowly became one job and then completely broke waiting for, uh, waiting for my ship date uh, for the Marine Corps because I had had lost so much weight. I looked horrible. uh, Things I was ignoring because I was finally socially accepted. How how long a period are you talking about while you were doing the methadrone and waiting to get into the Marine Corps? I graduated high school in January that year and wasn't leaving until – August. So in eight months uh, time, I went from quite a bit of savings to in two jobs to absolutely nothing to my name and 
40 pounds less <laughs> and I didn't have much to start with. And, and, and was methadrone the only drug you were trying at that time? Um, it was the big one. Uh, when people ask me what, like, what I was addicted to, I always tell them I was addicted to more. It really didn't matter what was in front of me, but uh, it was a uh, an upper. So I like to keep moving. It was my my thing. Yeah. You, you said that you um, the experience, and you, you were wondering what crazy thing you were going to do next. What kind of crazy things do you remember doing in those days? Well, um, in those days, it was just meeting girls, getting invited to parties. Um, I, uh, when I referenced crazy things, that was more in my Marine Corps days, uh, because act like I made three months clean time going through boot camp, but it wasn't long after boot camp that I was right back into it. It sounds like you were not ready for the Marine Corps physically, mentally, I suppose too, (laughs) when you arrived how did you survive three months of boot camp? Um, it was definitely a challenge for me. Um, I, uh, when I was going through MEPS and the ASVAB, I got a perfect score on my ASVAB. The Marine Corps offered me any job I wanted. Um, my first job was a uh, crypto linguist. I was a code breaker. And then they, um, <clears throat> that didn't pan out and I started to become a, uh, Electronic maintenance. I learned how to fix anything with wires from radios, satellites, TVs. If it had wires, I could fix it. Uh, but my job landed me in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Like going three months without drugs, my my mouth got me in a lot of trouble uh, during uh, boot camp. Uh, so I had plenty of extra PT time. And, oh, man, if I could show you a picture, you would not recognize the guy that went in to the guy three months later, I had gained 40 pounds. I was solid muscle. I was just huge uh, because, I mean, I, I worked through it. I thought it was it was my – I thought that was going to be my career in life. So I was okay with putting everything to the back burner. And you, and you thought that you had left the drugs behind mm-hmm. in did. your rearview mirror. I did. And, and, and you were able to do that because you replaced it with another uh, thing to focus on, which was surviving boot camp (laughs) and thriving in boot camp, I guess, and thriving in this new environment and this new lifestyle that you viewed as being your future. Yes, sir. But boot camp ends. You say something occurred that you returned to old ways? Uh, It was... um the Marines was going good for a minute. I, um, I was platoon leader. Um, I had a bunch of Marines under my belt. Like, uh, I was in charge of, I made it to Lance Corporal. I got promoted. So it was, um, things were going good, but I was, uh, I was stuck in the middle of the Mojave desert, which is middle of nowhere, but two hours from everything. It was two hours to Palm Springs, Palmdale, Los Angeles, four hours from Vegas, and so, uh, because of a paperwork thing, I got put behind and I was in a waiting platoon while all my friends were advancing forward. And in this waiting platoon, you stood in formation in the desert. Most of the day, it was, 
extremely boring. Um, and some of the guys that were coming through introduced me to uh, bath salts. That was like the same thing I would I was addicted to, but I could go to the convenience store and buy it. Uh, it was at every smoke shop. Uh, synthetic drugs that you couldn't get in trouble for. Um, like you would never pop on a urinalysis. So I, uh, I was all for like drugs without the consequences. And you were buying them legally. So it was, uh, it was exactly what, uh, my brain needed because I was bored. And that devolved quickly. Um, it did. Uh, there was, uh, like going to all these different cities that I'd only seen in movies and TV shows just had me, um, pushing myself to be dumb. Really? Um, I don't know if you remember Charlie Sheen when Charlie Sheen was in the news a lot It's around the same time this was happening. And instead of being like, Oh, that guy looks horrible. I was like, Oh, that guy's my idol. I can do as much drugs as he can. And the people that I was around, uh, that's when I started drinking too. Like, I I would black out on purpose uh, and have people record what I did, and that was like my goal for the weekend. Every time I had like Libo was to black out and then find out later what I ha- what had happened. Like, what crazy thing did I do? Because I wasn't even prepared for it. <laughs> um, it it was an extreme style of living, um, and because I would still be back in formation and running five Ks up sand mountains um so i thought i had it covered but uh eventually it did get to the point where i wasn't able to manage both and i remember i did ask for help um in the marine corps but they um it wasn't like something they could do immediately they knew i was on drugs but i would pee clean so uh they couldn't really catch me they tried multiple times to like find the drugs on me and I would be dumb and bold and like issue challenges to them. Like, okay, yeah, I have drugs in my room, but I'm not going to turn them over unless you can find them. And they would tear my room apart, but they never found it. So, uh, after I'd asked for help, I was still using, but, uh, it was a process. And in that process, like time, is when I uh, I finally got caught. It finally happened. And off to the brig I went. It was my first time in jail, and it was military jail. So I was uh, 19 years old, scared to death um, of what I was about to get into. I grew up when my father uh, was in prison pretty much my entire life, and he would always warn me about the horror stories of why I should never go. So that's what I'm expecting to happen. I didn't stay very long. The charges that they had wouldn't stick because the drugs were synthetic and there was no actual law broken. As soon as they uh, realized that, I was right back to it. They ended up taking a couple months before they sent me to my first rehab, which was out in San Diego. Even though when I was asking for help, I wasn't ready. I was three months in another brand new city that I'd only heard about in TV and movies. and The people that were there, were it was all military, but... We were all sharing drugs. Uh, there was no monitoring of what we would do when we would get our stuff. So we'd go back to our rooms and trade stuff and snort our medication instead of taking it uh, like the way it was meant to, just so we would have that same kind of feeling. 
And then three, when three months was over and I got out of the rehab, all of my friends were welcoming me back with drugs all over the table. They're like, hey, we've been waiting for you to come back. And I didn't have 24 hours clean. I was right back into it the, the second I got home. The atmosphere you're describing, when you were in high school, you, you fell in with a certain crowd of friends who were doing similar things. And you found that same crowd of folks in the Marines. Mm -hmm. It would surprise some people. It's a little surprising to me that it seems like it was not much different than, than in high school. Maybe even easier to find those friends. Um, the older I got, it was definitely easier to find. Through my different experiences, I learned to know what to look for. I could find a stranger on the street that had what I was looking for. It, And at the time, I had no care. I could go up to anybody and ask for it. But when I finally, when I was getting discharged from the military, it was under the assumption, like, this was a crazy charge. They, uh, they said I was trafficking, like, to the entire base. They really thought at one point that I was supplying the whole base with drugs. Um, I had built up a reputation. There was some people that I did sell to at the time that were, uh, like, gave their testimony. I convinced them that, no, I was just... I was doing it all in my room. Like I wasn't sharing with people. I, I thought that was crazy. I didn't want to share with anybody. Um, doing it with all those friends eventually turned into doing it alone. And like as the disease of addiction progressed, I kept isolating myself. I didn't want to be around anybody. I didn't want to share with anybody. Um, but when I got discharged from the military, it was with an OTH because again, hadn't broken any laws. So an OTH is other than honorable. They made it where I didn't get all the benefits of someone with a positive discharge, but I didn't get any negative repercussions of a negative discharge, kind of like I was never there. Talking earlier about what I, uh, where I'm at now, I have the option to go get that discharge changed um, to a, uh, a higher level. I never thought I deserved it because uh, of all the stuff that I did wrong, but now that I have a different mindset in life and I'm willing to take the help if I can get it. <laughs> Got a lot of things planned for the future. The Marine Corps wanted to get rid of you because you could not do your job right. on the path you were on. You mentioned that you had started drinking also. Were, during this period of time before you were uh, escorted from the Marine Corps, were you using other drugs besides the synthetic bath salts, experimenting with other drugs? While I was uh, in the Marines, no, uh, I keeping the uh, the test clean was one of my number one priorities. Like, um, I mean, there's a bunch of different synthetic stuff out there that you can try from hallucinogenics to synthetic marijuana, synthetic cocaine and meth. It just they were all available in your local um, smoke shop. It wasn't until the day they walked me out um in one of my uh, substance use days, I uh, I went and got married. Um, we went to Vegas, got married by Elvis. After only knowing each other 23 days, I was intoxicated the entire time. I, she had to wake me up to get married, but she was right there waiting on me when I got out of the uh, got out of the Marines. And while we were couch hopping around California, that's when I started doing the 
more known street drugs like cocaine, meth, uh, pot was basically legal out there in California. So I wasn't going anywhere, didn't work, didn't do anything. Um, so I wanted to get back to North Carolina, uh, back to Asheboro. My parents were willing to help out to get me back home. I had to hitchhike through a couple states and get on a couple buses, but I finally made it back to uh, North Carolina, uh, back to Asheboro. And for a while, it was fine. I wasn't drinking, wasn't using because I didn't know, like, this was my hometown. Like, I didn't know anybody that did those kind of drugs. The guy that I, uh, that introduced me, um, actually went off to the Marine Corps himself and has a amazing career now doing extremely well for himself. He wasn't around. And so I, t- I was trying to do the right thing until I get offered, uh, meth at my first job. Like, like they, uh, I recognized the signs of what they were doing, became that guy's friend right back into acts of addiction. Was there any hesitation when someone offered you meth at that job? Did you think about where you had been and where you wanted to go at that point in time? No, no hesitation. I, um, I saw it as like, I'm going to do my job better because I can move faster. I can, uh, focus better, uh, when I'm that kind of high. So I was, uh, right back into it. Uh, like I never stopped, um, cost me my first job. And then the second job I had, my employer was providing the different drugs. It was everywhere and it was encouraged. That's when drinking started to take, like, it was just casual drinking at first, uh, like weekends and different events, um, that we would work with. But I was taught how to drink and hide it from my boss because that's what he loved doing. And so I learned how to do it. I had my, uh, my first baby on the way. I knew that I needed to get a better handle on my life. Needed to quit those other drugs. Like uh, I wasn't going to get a good job if I couldn't pass a test. That's when I applied to work at the Courier Tribune. And I failed my first drug test there when I went to apply. Because I was told it was going to be a mouth swab. And I was like, oh, I can fake those. And they ran out of mouth swabs and I had to pee in a cup. And I failed. I had to wait six months and they let me try again. That's kind of when alcohol started to have its effect, like its big toll, because I was able to push all those other drugs away. I didn't want to be doing anything illegal to jeopardize, like, my family's future. But I was drinking. It just, over the five years of the newspaper, which was an extremely stressful job, um, it just uh, it just kept getting worse and worse. So was your drinking at the newspaper confined to after hours? At first, yes. Um, it slowly progressed to where I would, uh, I, I mainly worked, I worked nights and days when I worked at the newspaper. And it was fine when I had all the people to show up and do like all the newspaper routes. I didn't have to jump on there. But when they started just dropping off and I had to pick up and do the routes myself, I started drinking and driving. I was already intoxicated. Like, I wasn't actively drinking. I was drinking, then driving. 
But as addiction got worse, um, I started drinking a handle of spice rum a day. I couldn't get up in the morning without drinking. Like I had to have six to eight shots just to walk out the door. I had a, um, a water bottle on my desk, like at all times, uh, the squirt bottles that you can't see through full of rum, no chaser. And I would be drinking in front of everybody and nobody ever said anything to me. Um, I'd have to be, I'd be drinking while I was driving and that lasted for years, but I was driving in the middle of the night. I kept justifying to myself that it was okay because no one else was on the road. If I ever hurt anybody, it was only going to be myself because, uh, home life was being greatly affected, work life being greatly affected. I, I had destroyed my esophagus from where I would throw up like constantly and then drink more because I thought my body was missing it. So I just kept putting it in that uh, I finally decided to ask for help again. And the newspaper let me go uh, to another rehab. And I learned more at this place. Uh, they sent me all the way up to uh, Michigan to go to rehab. And it was a five-star place. It was amazing. Uh, there was massages there. The education was awesome. We did cognitive behavioral therapy, indigenous studies, uh, NAAA got introduced to all that. Like whatever you could think of, this place was so grandioso that it had an option for you. Like I said, I learned so much while I was there. I was the, uh, was it the peer council president? Like everywhere I've gone, I've always had management jobs. I managed that res uh, restaurant I've worked at. I've manager at the newspaper. I had leadership positions in Marine Corps, just always been leadership roles. I was doing great there. When I got out, it lasted six months. But what I didn't do like that I was supposed to do was I went right back to the exact same situation that I left. Same job, same stressors, same triggers. I just thought I could beat it because I had this new information. And like I said, for a while, I did really good. But um, it slowly picked up to where I um, thought I could have a handle on it. And just one would be okay here and there. And uh, it's only on the weekends. And then after not changing anything, everything slowly became exactly how it was before I left. That that time, it cost me everything. Um, when I talk about my addiction and what I had, I had a, uh, a wife two kids, multiple cars on my own house, um, corner office job. And I fit every bit of that inside of a bottle. First, the wife left. She gave me plenty of options to change, but I couldn't. So when she left, I, uh, I didn't care about the job anymore. So I quit it. Um, with no job and being at home alone, depressed, uh, stopped paying for the house. So soon it was gone. All the cars got repossessed and I was homeless within a year. I was, uh, living on the streets. And when I say streets, it wasn't like, uh, different houses. I was literally waking up in ditches. Um, 
I did have one car left, but the uh, the battery died like the first week I was living in it. So I lived in uh, a broken down car for a while. My parents tried to give me places uh, or try to let me stay with them, but I was so depressed that after losing everything that I had no will to live. I was honestly trying to drink myself to death. I, all the different problems that I caused, I was in and out of jail, and I thought I deserved to die. So there was no point in trying to get better. It was just, see you when I'm on my way out. I had, uh, staying with my parents didn't last very long. I couldn't stop. They, uh, they didn't really kick me out, but all that drinking and driving before, never got a DUI, borrowed my mom's car for like a five minute drive. And I popped a tire in front of the sheriff's office. Wasn't even doing anything reckless, just popped a tire. And when I got out to check it, uh, they pulled up and could smell the alcohol all over me. And I got my DUI not even driving. Keys weren't even in the ignition. Everybody in, um, when I got to jail, they're like, why didn't you lie? You could have said you were doing this, doing that. I was like, I was too drunk to lie. Um, but honestly, that was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because it took my license. So I don't know. I had, a, I had a real consequence. Like, a, I, I mean, I'd already lost everything, but now I'm sitting in jail doing nothing. Um, so when I got out, I had the shame of, uh, the damage I did to my mom's car where I popped the tire and messed up a little underneath and couldn't afford to fix that. So I just kind of bailed a couple months go by of, I was donating plasma. I was catching rides to go donate plasma and that would support my addiction. Um, cause I would buy enough to like a rotisserie chicken and a bottle of rum and I'd make it last a couple days till I got I was able to donate again, get another rotisserie chicken, another bottle of rum, keep making it last. Well, the person that was helping me out, she wanted to meet up with a friend of hers. And um, so met this friend of a friend and ended up being my partner. Now she um, kind of crashed her couch and never left with what her and her family do, uh, the community hope Alliance where they they're used to helping people in active addiction. Like it wasn't that much of a stretch for the things I was doing to be around them. See, I met her in July, end of July, early August, November. She gave me uh, an ultimatum. I, I, I kept messing up. I kept being belligerently drunk and, hurting people close to me not intentionally just couldn't control myself and she was like you know you can uh you can still keep doing what you do and we can hang out but you're not going to be around my kids anymore if you're going to continue to drink like that that was the like deciding moment i was like i can't lose a second family like these people have taken me in like helped me uh when i had nothing literally nothing to my name and I was like, I can't lose a second family because of this. For the next like couple weeks, I uh, tapered down, and I already had all the knowledge from all the different rehabs and detoxes that I had been to. Um, so it was just the matter of applying it. I I finally got clean, um, and that was come November this November. So in 
just shy of two months, I will be clean for four years where I have not drank anything. Uh, I've not touched any drug. Marijuana definitely was there at the beginning. I had to taper off of that. I didn't really see that as a bad thing at the time. I used it to help me get off of everything else. So I'll take those stepping stones. I had always known, like, we're some of the questions you brought up about being around those same type of people everywhere I went and always getting attracted to those people. I knew people were that were in active addiction were my kind of people. Those are the ones I could relate to, get along with. We could talk on the same subjects. And it finally dawned on me. I was like, oh, well, I had my greatest times in rehab with people in active addiction trying to get sober, trying to be clean. It just... It just made sense. Like, if I want to be around them, then I'm going to be around the clean versions. Um, but I decided to take my um, my life in steps. I didn't want to jump into anything too fast. So I started volunteering for harm reduction, um, the syringe exchange program. I did some in-person talks as well as um, going around the city, providing clean supplies to people that were in active use, giving me a chance to talk to them, see them. Actually, you know what? Scratch that. I got to uh, back up because one of the key things I missed was November, stopped using. January, February, uh, right around the corner, I had a few months clean. But I had made a very big error and I hurt someone again. And I knew I was going to jail. So this was my first temptation of using drugs or drinking again was because I knew I had messed up and I was going to go to jail regardless. So the first thought that went through my head was F it. I'm, I'm on my way back. And I, um, but I like, no, I don't want to wake up hungover in jail. I don't want to be going through detoxes in jail. So I said, I'm just going, went and turned myself in. And it was in that like jail time that I um, I started meditating and finally taking responsibility for all my actions. Um, I thought I was taking responsibility before. Oh, I wouldn't have done this if you wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have said this if you wouldn't have said that. But this time, I couldn't even say it was the drug's fault. Couldn't say it was the alcohol's fault. I was 100% sober when I committed a crime and 100% sober sitting in jail. This is my fault. It, the drugs and alcohol was just a tiny bit of what I had to change about myself. I had to change my thought pattern, the way I did everything. I meditated through the 30 days in jail. Um, People would poke and prod at first, but by the end of it, I had people meditating with me. And I, I just came out of it like the best way to reference is I just woke up finally. All my issues, everything, all the pain that I had caused people finally made sense. All the times that I would scream like, I'm only hurting myself, why do you care? I realized just how much I was hurting other people too because of my addiction. That's when I started getting into the volunteering, and that was for two years of my like first part of my sobriety. 
I went in those two years, I went through anger management. I, um, got my peer support specialist certification. My kids that I had originally uh, had taken from me, I got my babies back in my life. I have, I lost my license with the DUI after two years, finally got that together, got my license back. But I was, I was working furniture and that was hard, uh, working around that many drugs, but I was doing it. I, I, I stayed clean, but I was around people that were using and it, I felt comfortable with them. So once I got the, the peer support specialist, I, uh, that's when I applied to Daymart. I, I wanted to work in my hometown and so in the field, get actually get paid, not just give these little side lectures, uh, during my breaks and on my lunches, um, actually do it for a living. I applied in April uh, of last year, did not get hired until November. I had another baby on the way, but I was dedicated. I wasn't going to work anywhere for money ever again. I was going to do what I love to do with that passion, with that strive. Like I wasn't going to settle for anything less. And now I get a job where I love going to work. I love helping people. A lot of the clients there are able I'm able to talk to them and relate to them in a way that some nurses and even some doctors can't relate to because they learned about addiction or they seen somebody go through it, but they didn't go through it themselves. When I can, when I tell people how much I lost and gained, it gives them that sense of hope that like, I was in the same streets doing the exact same thing you are. And uh, everybody's different. I don't know. 100% what you're going through, but damn if I can't relate. And here's where I'm at now. I'm actually uh, in the process of going to be a counselor. That's going to take a couple years, but it is totally worth it. The Harm Reduction Coalition, um, being a part of it, being part of this is absolutely amazing to me to be a part of this right here, right now. Because anything I can do to help, um, raise awareness, fight stigma, and just let people know that they're cared about. So many people get looked over in this town, in this city, like the homeless, the ones with mental health needs, the ones with substance use disorder. It ain't even second-class citizens. They are treated like they're not even there. I think that's unacceptable. So... If I got to put my voice out there and let people know, like, well, that was me and you like me now. Well, if you give these people a little bit, they could do the same thing. People with substance use are typically some of the smartest people you'll ever meet. The way they can come up with some of the craftiest situations, even some of their crimes are like, dang, how'd you do that? Um, but it's, uh, they just need, the right kind of caring, the right motivation, the right kind of love. And even if they're not ready, we got to be here for them until they are. Yeah. You've mentioned that everyone's experience is different. And of course that's true in life in general. Uh, everyone's path to recovery is different. You mentioned the times you went to rehab and you were not ready. So although there may be, there may have been some lessons that sort of stuck, 
you weren't ready to put those lessons into use, there's not a switch that you or I or anyone else can turn on for someone else. Correct. And there's no telling what that switch is. Uh, A lot of people say, why don't you just stop? And you have provided a narrative of being in places where you had everything going for you. And yet you repeatedly did things that took those things away from you. And then when you decided you wanted to change, you thought you had changed and you hadn't changed to the point where you are now. That acceptance, full responsibility for what you did is what has pulled you through. What individuals, so many of our fellow human beings on this planet need, we all need, is a sense of hope. And that's something that you're able to give them in your job. How many people look at you and with tears in their eyes and say thank you for caring about me? Um, it happens quite a bit. Um, I find most people just want to be heard. That is the skill that I possess is being able to listen um, without judgment. There to love them, there to care for them, there to listen for them. And they definitely show their gratitude. Being there for people is just amazing. Like I, I couldn't think of any better way to spend my life. It is hard to be there for someone, to support, to listen, and see them still take the path they've been on. But you cannot do this for someone else. That's right. What would you say to the loved ones of people struggling with addiction? Uh, Provide strength, provide support, provide love. What else do people not understand about the folks who are struggling so hard with substance use disorder? I know when it comes to um, family members, it is an extremely difficult uh, position to be in. I know from the outside what I did to my parents. And so many times when my parents tried to help me, I would push them away because they just didn't understand. Even when they were giving me options, I didn't want them. But... My mom never gave up. (laughs) Didn't mean she didn't yell at me. Uh, Wasn't ready to, like, strangle me probably at some times. But she didn't give up. She kept letting me know she was there. Like I said, I put her through hell. Not there as in, like, oh, here's some money. Like, she wasn't enabling me. But just knowing that whenever I was ready, she was there. And I take that attitude into my job because I I do see quite a bit of repeat people walk through my doors. Um, And that's okay. Because as long as they're making the decision to go there, 
that they're, they're in the right step. As long as that thought is going through their mind and they're doing something active about it to the family, it doesn't matter how big a step is. As long as someone's making a step in the right direction then and supporting them when they do, don't expect them to fail. Just because they failed a thousand times doesn't mean on attempt number 1001, they won't succeed. So it's providing that support that you're going to stand with them. And not, not everybody makes it out of this. I, I understand that. I couldn't imagine what it would be like for any of my children to have to go through it. But from a son's perspective, I can say I'm glad they didn't give up on me because I didn't give them any reason to believe in me many, many times. And now I've exceeded all our expectations and I'm still moving forward and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for them not giving up. And I think that's a great place for us to stop. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me.